This morning's text comes from Acts 4, 32 through 5, 11. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Please join me as we pray God's blessing over the teaching of his word. Father, I thank you for your word that brings us life, that instructs us to walk in holiness, that instructs us to follow you with our whole heart, Father. And so we ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word today. We ask that you would anoint Pastor Tom as he delivers it, and that it would pierce our hearts to the core to lead us to repentance, to follow harder after you. In Jesus' name, amen. I was up in Minnesota. I was a part of, uh, of planting a church up there. And um, I had this really kind of uh, life-changing experience. We started the church. There, there was nobody there. And, and so as a result, there was no income really coming in. And so all of us got jobs um, uh, wherever we could to kind of pay the bills for the family. And I got a job at the Mall of America. Um, I worked for a company called uh, Franklin Day Planners. Um, anybody ever hear of it? Franklin Day Planners Life Organization System. It's not just a calendar, people. It's a life organization system. Um, 
If you know me or, or you've seen my desk, um, to have me sell life organization products is a lot like hiring uh, Fat Albert to advocate for the uh, Adkins diet. Um, and, and, and you might think um, that I didn't really learn anything from the time I spent selling these life organization products. But that wouldn't be true. I actually learned, learned a great deal. In fact, it was just, it deeply beneficial for me to kind of transform kind of the way in which I even see my life. It was not so much in the area of organization, but it was in the area of understanding life priorities and how to live out your life and what really truly matters in your life. Um, I've shared this story in the past, but the founder of the company that I was working for was a man by the name of Hiram Smith. The company actually didn't start out as a life management company. It, it started out as a seminar company. And Hiram Smith would go around and he would give seminars on how to live your life, on how to organize your life, and how to structure your life. And out of those seminars drew this idea, we need a product that helps us implement that which you're teaching. And so as a part of our training, one of the things we would do is we would sit and we'd watch some of the seminars that Hiram Smith would, would, would teach. And there was one particular seminar that to this day has really impacted me in my life and has really kind of changed the way in which I view everything that we do in our lives. It was this particular seminar where he talked about the, the motivation that we as humans have. He was talking, he said, there, there, are, there, are, there are essentially three levels of human motivation. And each of those levels of motivation increasingly grow to a point of, of greater purity. He says the first level of motivation that we have as humans is, is this motivation of, I have to. I have to do this. Generally, that motivation of have to comes from this place of fear, comes from, this, comes from this place of being afraid of what will happen if I don't do that. Um, for a lot of us, um, we understand this motivation right around April 15th every year. Right? See, we, we pay our bills, or we pay our taxes because we have to. We have to pay our taxes because if we don't pay our taxes, something bad is going to happen to us. Somebody's going to show up at our door and they're going to drag us to court or they're going to drag us to jail, right? There's very few of us that get this warm feeling deep inside of us when it comes time to write out that check for the taxes because the motivation we have is, I have to do this. The next motivation that, that, that Hiram Smith described was, I ought to do this. That you move, up for, then you move up the level from, I have to do this out of fear to, I ought to do this because it's the right thing to do. This is a little bit greater motivation, a little bit purer motivation, but the idea behind it is there's a sense of responsibility, a sense of obligation, a, a sense of guilt maybe even that I ought to do this. For some of us, this is what happens every time it comes around Christmas time. You ever been in a place, I've been in this place in my own life every single year, where there's the expectation that everybody's going to buy a gift for everybody in the room, right? I don't, I, like, I don't mind buying gifts. In fact, I like buying gifts for people, but I don't like having to buy gifts for people. I don't like the obligation of buying gifts for people. And so every time we come to this point, I, I love Christmas. Christmas is this huge thing for me. I love the concept of Christmas. I love the idea of Christmas. I love that, that our Savior was born. I love the twinkling lights. I love the, the snow falling. I love Christmas. And always there's this little piece of it where I feel this obligation where I ought to buy gifts for people, and it cheapens it a little bit. Anybody know what I'm talking about? 
So you have these levels of, of motivation where you go from I have to because it's this idea of fear. Where there's, there's, then there's this level of motivation of I ought to where there's, there, there's this an obligation to do it. We feel like you should do it. And the final motivation that Hiram Smith talked about was I love to. That you move into this place in which your motivation to do this is simply because I love to. Because I have this change in my heart. I have this feeling inside me where this is what I want to do. This is, this is what matters to me. This is what I care about. I think each one of us, if we thought about it in the context of the jobs that we have, we, we've been at places where we, where we had to go to work because if we didn't, we'd lose our job. Or we, we felt like we ought to go to work because we made, a, we made an agreement that we would do this. But if you ever had that job where you loved it, where you loved to be there, where you were engaged in it, where it just truly mattered to you. These are the three levels of motivation that we have as people, as individuals in our lives. And as we've been walking through the story of the birth of the church in the, in the book of Acts, we've been, we've, been, we've been seeing the elements that made this church. I, I bring this idea of motivation up because we've been looking at the character and the heart of the early church in our series entitled Unstoppable. Um, we've been talking about the different elements that, that produced that church that changed the world. And, 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 make, and, and make no mistake about it, this church changed the world. We talked about this earlier in the series. This was a group of 200 people. 200 people. That was it. There was about 200 people who had committed themselves in that upper room to prayer and committed themselves in that upper room to receiving the Holy Spirit, to being the church of Jesus Christ. And today we stand in a place, 2,000 years later, where there are 2.2 billion people who have given themselves to Jesus Christ. That is a, that is a radical transformation of, of, of humankind, right? From 200 to 2.2 billion. I think some of us don't really understand the impact that they had. You, you realize that means every single year there are millions of people Giving their, for 2,000 years, every year, millions of people are turning their hearts and lives over to Jesus Christ. Thousands upon thousands every day for 2,000 years because of what took place on that first Pentecost Sunday at the birth of the church by a group of 200 people who were radically changed by the power of Jesus Christ. This is the image of the unstoppable church. And as we've been going through this, we have been looking at the qualities and the characteristics that are worth embracing because it creates in us, creates in our church that unstoppability. To this point, as we've looked at it, the book of Acts has shown us that those people were united. The Bible says in Acts that, that they were of one accord, of one heart, completely and totally given, not to their own individual identity, not to their own individual ideas, but to what Jesus Christ had implanted in them. And so they were united, not for their own wants, not for their own desires, but together they wanted the glory of God revealed. The Acts tells us that they were obstinately given to prayer that they were consistently and constantly and obstinately in prayer with one another to see God move. It told us that, that this was a group of people who were filled with the Holy Spirit, anointed with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and as a result, they were committed to going forth and declaring the glory of Jesus Christ. Each of these qualities 
that we've looked at as we've walked through the book of Acts is a quality that's important for us to embrace, for us to hang on to and to see whether or not we have it in our own lives, in our own church. And as they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they went forward and they were committed to, to declaring the glory of Jesus Christ in all circumstances at all times. Each step of the way, the, the character and the heart of the church has been revealed. And there is in this morning's story a truth that becomes clouded, that needs clarification if we are going to understand the nature of the church that God uses to transform the world. Even as we've walked through every chapter, we've been able to see and look and say, this is what God wants us to be. This is who God wants us to be. And if you don't quite get it right, if you don't quite take the right view of what we've just read, you're going to miss something that is deeply important for us to embrace to be an unstoppable church along the same vein as that first century church. Take a look at, what, take a look at what's happening in the passage that was read. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said they had any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So the recording here is of a group of people that, that in this early place, in this early time, was willing to take everything they had, their actions, their activity was to take whatever they had and to sell it so that those who were around them had, that had need would receive, that everyone would be provided for. It is, this, it is this beautiful picture of a group of people who are saying, what I have doesn't matter, what you need matters more. Now, we then go into a ne- the next story, and it is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And we see what happens when someone does something different than what the rest of the church was doing. What you see here is the church as a whole was going in. There's this great story of Joseph or Bar- Barnabas before, in which it just, it just kind of just lays out where he just went and said, oh, okay, I'm going to sell this and give this so that people will be met. Right from there, it jumps to the story of Ananias and Sapphira who go out and, and they do a, 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 apparently what everyone else was doing. They go and they, they, they sell their, their property, they sell their land, and they come and they lay it down at the feet of the, the apostles in much the same way that Joseph, Joseph or Barnabas did, where he was able to stand up in front of everybody and say, man, I watched Joseph do this, I watched him do that, I saw him sell everything, and so, so I want to be in the same category as him, I want to do the same thing he did. So they come in and they bring their money and they drop it before Peter. But the Spirit of God speaks to Peter and reveals to Peter that they're lying. That they didn't give it all. That they withheld a little bit. And so that them in their pride, them in their arrogance, them in their desire to be seen as specially holy chose to lie to Peter and to the church and to the Holy Spirit. And so the judgment of God comes in a swift way. And he, and, he, and, and he is killed on the spot. His wife comes in and, and he, she's confronted with the same truth and she tells the same lie. And so she, is, so she is judged on the spot. Now, you read this morning's text 
And the temptation is to draw from it that the church that is unstoppable is the church that has all things in common. That a church where, where no one said that, they, that any of their things that belonged to them was his own, that, that, that organizing or instituting a financial communalism will help empower the church to be unstoppable. That this eradication of personal property in exchange for corporate distribution is a key point to the church's growth. That would be an easy conclusion to draw from what we see, right? If my entire conversation as we've been going through the book of Acts has been, look at what the church did, look at who the church was. And we should emulate that and we should live that out. There were those like Joseph or Barnabas, Joseph or Barnabas who, who was willing to give. And then there was, and then there was, there was Ananias and Sapphira who, who withheld. And, and, and they were punished. And so if we are going to be that church that, that moves forward, that, 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 is, that is unstoppable, that we've been talking about this whole time, then we have got to emulate this and we've got to institute this so that people come and they give everything they have and there is no personal property. And it is just all... That's an easy conclusion to draw from this, isn't it? This is a conclusion that is drawn by a lot of people as they read this story. But I would say that it is a conclusion that misses the true strength revealed in these passages. The the true strength that propels the church forward. This false conclusion is drawn from the doing of the first century church. But the true strength is in seeing the motivation of that first century church. What I mean by this brings me back to how I opened my message this morning. As I learned from Hiram Smith, there are three levels of motivation. And this story is not about a church that had to have all things in common. It's not, it's not about a church that, that ought to have all things in common. It is the story about a church that loved to have all things in common. That was transformed in a way in which their hearts desired to meet the needs of others. They found their motivation in their love for Jesus Christ. And it manifested in their love for his people and for his church. Now this is not an insignificant point. This is not an unimportant distinction to draw for you because too many in Christianity work too hard to produce in people modified behaviors that reflect Christian values. And when you do that, you gut the true heart of the gospel life. Too often we think, If we use various levels of motivation to get people to act in a Christian way, we have have made someone or something somehow more Christian. And that's not true. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. We act as though if if we can use fear or threats, so they have to do what the Bible says. Or guilt, so they so they ought to do what the Bible says. That somehow that makes us more Christian. But ultimately this, this has little to do with the power of Christianity or the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Doing things out of fear. Doing things because you have to. Doing things because you ought to that look like being a Christian is not the heart of Christianity. 
Someone or something is not Christian because they do Christian things. When you look at the story, what you see is a group of people so moved by their experience in the Holy Spirit and in Jesus Christ that they responded to the need around them. The reason this is not an insignificant point is because nothing in Christian life should be done under compulsion. Nothing in Christian life should be done out of compulsion. No one should be doing things, changing behavior, because they have to or because they ought to, but because they love to. Because the love of Christ has produced a love for Christ that causes us to want to, to love to, live in a way that brings glory to his name, that touches others so that they may see Jesus, that draws us in closer to a relationship to him. This is the heart and the motivation of Christianity. See, Christians are changed from the inside out. Nothing that we do on the outside changes what's in here. What's in here changes everything out, 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 outside of us. From, from within, we are changed. And because of what takes place here, our behavior changes, our actions change because of how God has deeply changed us. I want you guys to notice something. Even from, even from the, the, the truly frightening story of Ananias and Sapphira, even in this story, we learn this, the lesson I'm saying. We, we learn the idea that none of this is under, under compulsion. People, you, you talk about this and people say, oh, oh, he had to do it. He had to do it because, because we can see that because he didn't do what he was supposed to do, God killed him. And so he had to do it. Well, that's not at all what we're seeing in this story. That's not at all what's taking place here. There was, there, was a, there was a reality that, that, that the motivation was not supposed to be I had to. It was not supposed to be fear. In fact, it wasn't at all what, the, what, the, what the, the apostles were calling the people to do or how they were calling them to do it. Now, before I show you how even in this the call was not compulsive, I just want to take a minute or two to address God's actions here. It's so... For us, we sit and we, we read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and for many of us, it can seem really harsh and it can seem really, really difficult to wrap our minds around because we understand God as a God of grace and of mercy. We as Christians have, have embraced Jesus and have drawn, been drawn to Christ because of the love of Jesus Christ. And so we look at this and we say, how is it that God struck him dead? For many of us, we know that even in our own hearts and our own lives, there are times in which we sin, Right? A lot of us will stand here in judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, but I think if we were honest, we would say their actions are not that much different than the actions that we have done on numerous of occasions. So for a lot of us, we read this story and we really struggle with what took place. And I want to give you at least a little insight as to how we frame the interaction that God has here with Ananias and Sapphira as a result of their lies and as a result of their sin. This occurrence... uh, God striking someone down for their sin is not normative after the work of Christ on the cross. As you walk through the Old Testament, you see this kind of thing occurring on a regular basis, but in the New Testament, you hardly ever find it because the work of Jesus Christ changed the relationship we have with God. You see, the work of Jesus Christ and the establishment of the new covenant 
the covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ as Jesus himself testifies to at the Lord's Supper. Establish Jesus Christ as the, the intermediary, as the, as the sacrifice, as the one who would receive the punishment, the one who received the, 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 the judgment that we deserve. He took it on the cross. And so therefore, for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, he stands in the gap for us. No longer is it us required to lay down the blood of lambs or lay down the blood of goats or to be punished, but that he received the punishment in our stead. And so therefore, this is, this is not a normative experience. This is, not, this is not what we see on a regular basis. God deals with, with, with people, particularly his children, in mercy as a result of Jesus Christ's work on the cross. This here is a unique experience for a unique purpose at a unique time. Now, that's not to say that God can't do it today. He, he is God, and, and we exist for his purpose and, and for his glory. And how many of you guys remember last week's message where I said, so many of us believe that God, God exists to serve our, our, our wants and our will. But the reality is we, we exist to serve his, his wants and his will. And so we lay our lives down. And so however God decides to interact with us is fully within his right as God. But Jesus Christ, because of his sacrifice, is working in a different way. But here, in this moment in time, he was doing something special. I want to read a quote to you from N.T. Wright about this passage because I think it properly puts in perspective what God is doing here. But even more so, it shows us who we are in relationship to God and what he's doing in this. He writes and says, We basically do not like the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It is just shocking to us to think that even if people have deceived and have lied about the money that they have given to the church, that they will be struck dead just like that. What sort of sense can we make of the story like Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11? Well, I think the best way to look at it is to remind ourselves that in Acts 4, what we are looking at is the creation of the new temple community, and the temple is not to be trifled with. Whether we like how this works out or not, I think this is the underlying logic. That in the Old Testament, when the tabernacle is set up, there are very strict rules because when God comes to dwell in the midst, he doesn't come just like some elderly relative to hang out with you or for that to be all right and you go visit him and so on. If he's God, he's God. If you are sinful, weak, stupid human beings, then you're simple, weak, stupid human beings. How are you going to put these two together? So the book of Leviticus has very carefully instructions for the ways in which we were to approach, the ways in which it's going to be even possible, even thinkable for God and humans to be together, for heaven and earth to be together. This is not just a free-for-all. This is stuff which matters because God is in your midst and you have to live as holy people. I think the great implication of this is to remind us of how great God is, how holy God is, how incredible God is. And so therefore, we must come before him in that humility 
and not think that we can that we can trifle with this, that we can that we can that we can play in our sin and pretend we're something other than we're other than what we are. God is a holy God. Don't ever believe that that God's visitation upon us is something that is common. That God's visitation upon us is something that that is to be discounted. Every time we come into this place and you sense the presence of the Holy Spirit in this place, whenever you sense the presence of the Holy Spirit in your home or in that moment, understand that is a holy God visiting a very unholy people. There should be a soberness about this. There should be a seriousness about this interaction with God. And so I think that within this, this this business of God reconciling us to Him, as as, as N.T. Wright says, reconciling us sinful, weak, stupid humans to a glorious, holy, pure King is always the way we should see it. Our place under God requires us to submit to Him as God because He is so holy. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever set that aside. Embrace that as reality and truth and understand the great blessing we have that we've been reconciled with Him. It is really about us understanding His holiness and His righteous act, that He is righteous in acting in his, best, in, in his best interest. And so as we look at this story, we have to recognize really what is taking place as it relates to even the judgment of God on Ananias and on Sapphira and what the ultimate issue here was. I want you to look again at the interaction between him and Peter. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of all the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is that that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. What you discover in, in reading this, in the interaction between Peter with Ananias, was not that he, he didn't do what he had to do, but because his motivation was not an internal love of Christ and Christ's people, but an external desire to be seen as better or holy. In his pride, he lied. It wasn't that he had to do it. In fact, very clearly, when you look at the words of Peter, it becomes undeniable. He didn't have to do it. There was no requirement for him to do it. There was, there was no compulsion for him to do it. While it remained unsold, Peter said, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not yours to do as which you, as which you choose to do at your disposal? What is the reality here? Peter is saying clearly, it was yours to do with as you choose. Nobody made you. There was no compulsion to do it. There was no had to here. I want you to hear the way John Piper explains this, because I think he explains it really well. 
Peter tells Ananias that there is no such constraint in the generosity Ananias sees all about him in the church. These people were acting out of freedom. That's what true faith means, an authentic change of where your heart is so that your acts of love are free. They are what you want to do, not what you feel coerced to do. So Peter says in verse 4, while your property remained unsold, did it not remain your own? There aren't any church rules here that say you have to sell your property. That it's not yours anymore, Ananias. If people around you are saying, my possessions are not mine anymore, this is not because they have to say this. It's because they want to say this. They've been changed from the inside out by trusting in Jesus. They're free. Then he goes on in verse verse 4 and says, after your property was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, nobody coerced you to bring any of your money in here. If your heart doesn't tell you to bring it, don't bring it. The issue is not whether you give or don't give, or, or, or whether God has so gri- but, or, but whether God has so gripped your heart that you would love to give. That's the issue. What has God done in you? What is, how has God changed you? Too often the world, and too often those in the church, see the Christian life, what, what we give, what, what we abstain from, what we engage in, what we sacrifice as being motivated by fear because we're afraid of punishment or, or because we're afraid of, of, of going to hell. That, that what we're doing, we have to do or we won't be able to get to heaven or because we'll be punished by God. Where people see this as, as being motivated by ought, that, that because we have a sense of guilt, if we, if we don't. But the free gift of salvation, and you have to understand this. This is so important to our understanding of our faith. The free gift of salvation secured by the work of Christ affords us the opportunity to all, do all that we do simply because we love to because we love Jesus, because we love his church, because in doing it, we are able to press deeper into this relationship with Jesus Christ. It is for his glory and not for us, because we don't have to do it. I can't add one thing to my salvation by giving more money. I can't add one thing to my salvation by sacrificing more, because Jesus Christ has done it all already. And so there is no have to in this. There is no ought to in this. There is entirely the fact that I am responding to the love of Jesus Christ to me, and so therefore I want to love him with everything I am. That's faith. That's Christianity. It is not unlike the relationship I have with my wife or the relationship you may have with your husband or your wife. If every time you buy your flowers, you do it because you're afraid that if you don't, something bad will happen to you. That doesn't say much about your relationship, does it? But when I do things for my wife, I do them because I love her and because I want to cultivate our relationship even more deeply because of that love. That's why we follow Jesus. That's why we give of, our, of what we have. That's why we sacrifice for others. That's why we engage in this life. 
Because we love him so deeply, we want to be drawn nearer and nearer and nearer to him. Ultimately, the qualities, the characteristics from this church we need to learn is not what they did in their communalism, but we need to learn from the transformation in them that had taken place to produce these actions. See, it really comes down to two things that the author Luke is revealing about the nature of believers gripped by the work of Christ through the touch of the Holy Spirit. The two effects of believing in Jesus illustrated here are that the heart lets go of things and instead takes hold of people. That this church was was so touched by the Holy Spirit, so founded in their love for Jesus, that the reasonable response was to let go of things and take hold of the relationship within community. This is what we should be reflecting on as we sit here today in the church. How has God's love gripped you? Has it gripped you so deeply that it is easy for you to let go of your hold on things so that you can embrace a relationship and a love with others? See, this is a reflection of the work of Jesus Christ for us, his great love for us. And when he takes hold of us, we can't help but love others. Look at how this unfolds in our text this morning. You start in verse 32 and it says, Now the full number of those who believed, and just stop there for a second. Notice that word, believed. The Greek word translated here speaks to a a deep fidelity, that which you've entrusted yourself to, that which you've put your confidence in. That these people deeply had set everything in their belief in Jesus Christ, in the work that he did. Their life was set on that. They believed in him. This is the key. Believing in Jesus as Savior, as Lord. Trusting for all your needs. Being satisfied with all that God is for you in Jesus. That's the key. That is the root of this entire story. That they have set everything on their completion being in Jesus Christ, their provision being in the gifts of the Father. Everything good that follows flows out of that dependent belief. None of this can happen otherwise. True belief in Jesus, in his provision for you, in his love for you, in his work for you, is the key to the rest. So you continue on, it says, Those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, this authentic believing in Jesus had these two effects. Now, the company of those who believed were of one heart and soul. There you see the very first effect. Believing in Jesus draws the heart into a relationship with others, especially with Christians. This believing in him, this, this, just, this belief in the truth that Jesus Christ gave all, that I may be a part of this community, that I may be a part of his church, transforms your heart in a way in which you say, I love his church. I love his people. When you become united to Jesus by faith, you become united to his people by love. Again, the motivation here isn't guilt or obligation. It is because the heart of Christ becomes the heart of his people. And as Christ loves his church, so do we. 
How well do we do in this area? How well has God's love gripped you, Christ's love gripped you, that you love your brothers and sisters? How much of this is still us looking at it for ourselves and what I receive and the desire to grip and hang on to things? The work of Christ in the heart of the believer teaches them to love his people the way he does. Then comes the other effect as we read on. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and so no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So there is the second effect of believing in Jesus. First, the heart takes hold of others in its relationship to people, and then second, the heart lets go of its relationship to things. Faith in Christ creates a bond of love to people and cuts the bond of love towards things. That's what this story is all about. It is the snapshot of a community of people whose hearts have been truly revolutionized by believing in Jesus. They found themselves freely caring about people and freely selling land and houses and giving the money to the church for distribution to those with special needs. This is what is understood will take place in our hearts as we fully yield to the work of Christ. It's really fascinating because Luke, who wrote this in Acts, also recorded these words of Jesus in Luke chapter 12. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. So what is happening here? What is, what is Luke recording here? He's recording the fulfillment of Christ's words in the gospel. And it wasn't because they had to in order to earn God's favor or keep church rules. It was because they heard the word of Jesus and truly believed. Fear not, little flock, for it is your God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It was in that they understood that they believed in the promise of God's fatherly care. They had a faith that allowed them to set their life in a place in which they could let go and trust him. They were set free from the burdens of the things of this life because they really believed that the Father cared for them, that the Father had given them the kingdom, that the Father would provide for them, that the Father would look out for them. It was that belief that allows you to let go. How many of you believe that deeply today? How many of you truly believe God's word when he says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory? How many of you truly believe that your provision is not in your talent or in your ability or in your job, but your true provision is in the hand of God to take care of you? The thing that stands in the way of so many of us is that we confess with our mouths but do not believe in our hearts the promises of God. We say it's true, we think it's true, but we never live in a way in which it truly is true. Because we don't really believe the things that we're saying. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What Luke is describing for us here in this story is the radically freeing effect of true faith in Jesus. 
Christianity is not a matter of external conformity to religious expectations. It is a matter of internal liberty, being set free from the need for things to love in the way in which Christ loved. It is not a matter of force and law. It's a matter of freedom and love. Being a Christian means being changed in the inside out so that you fall in love with people and fall out of love with things. So at the root of this is the question of what do you do when you see Jesus? If you're here, if you're here, you understand and you're hearing that the root of Christianity is not rules. If you're here this morning and you really don't understand what it is to be a Christian, understand this truth. Christianity is not about rules. It is, it, it is not a, a, about an ought to. It is not about a have to. Christianity is about the discovery of the love of Jesus Christ. And in that discovery, responding to that love. Every single person in this room who has given their hearts to Jesus Christ, who has chosen to live differently because of that relationship, does it not out of fear, not out of have to, not out of ought to, but they're doing it out of a love for Jesus Christ that changed them. If you're here this morning and you've never experienced the love of Jesus Christ, I want you to understand that the testimony of a Christian is not that they have to do it. We're not here to give you a new set of rules. We're not here to tell you how you should do this or shouldn't do that. We're here to introduce you to the love of Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God who loved you so much in spite of your sin, loved you so much that he was willing to come to this earth and suffer and die. His understanding was deeply that your sin separated you from a relationship with his heavenly father and he desired that you would be reconciled to, to, to his father, that you would be set free, that you would be cleansed. And so in his love for you, the Bible says, while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And in this moment, he is calling you to him to experience the love that He has for you, that washes you clean, that sets you free, that allows you to set your life and your future on Him. The call is that you discover His love and your life will be changed because of it. Not out of fear, not out of guilt, but out of love. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, that is is the call this morning. It's not a set of rules. It's a relationship with someone who loved you first. For those of us who are Christians, the question is, how deeply do you believe in the love and promises of God? If we are not living free from the grip of things and we are not alive to the love of others, there is a lack of faith in the provision of the Father. It just comes down to that. 
If we are clinging so strongly to the paychecks and to the, to the nicer cars and the bigger homes, and we are not free to let go of the things of this world so that we may bless his church and we may bless his people and we may bring forth the gospel, then our confession is we don't truly believe in the provision of God. We don't truly believe in his ability to provide for us. We must love him and his people and his church so deeply that we can let go and say, what is needed of me? If you're here today as a Christian and you're still struggling with that, I would ask you the question, do you truly believe in the provision of God? Is it a confession with only your mouth and not your heart? This is the challenge that is laid before each one of us as believers. The church that moves forward and is unstoppable has been set free by the love of God from hanging on to the things of the world so that they may love more deeply than they've ever known before.